Welcome, baseball fans, to Episode 9 of the Banished to the Pen podcast, the audio component of the website Banished to the Pen, a baseball blog produced by fans of the Effectively Wild podcast. I am your host, Ryan Sullivan, editor-in-chief of NatsGM.com and the baron of all baseball podcasts. This week, I am excited to be joined by two major contributors to Banished to the Pen and two talented, talented writers, Julian Asseline. I hope I got that right. And Seth Rubin. Guys, say hello to the internet. Hi. Hi, internet. Good to hear from you guys this week. Uh, I'm very excited to have you guys on. Like I say, I'm a big fan of your uh, both of you guys' work, uh, and I think you guys are both great writers. So I'm excited to talk some baseball with you this week. First place we always start on the podcast is let's introduce yourselves to everybody that's listening in the audience. Um, I'm going to start alphabetically, as we always do. So, Julian, introduce yourself to the audience, you know, day job, Twitter handle, where they can find your work, team team you follow, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Just introduce yourself. Okay, so, hi, I'm uh, Julian, and uh, my Twitter handle is at Julian Asuline. It's basically my name. Um, I follow the Boston Red Sox. I've been, uh, I guess, playing and uh, following baseball since... I was, what, nine or ten years old, something like that. And uh, I, I live in Montreal. I obviously contribute to Banish to the Pen. I'm a sports writer for The Link, which is my uh, school newspaper. I'm a student. I, uh, I'm currently studying uh, in English literature at Concordia University. And uh, I also contribute to uh, the Fangraphs community blog. And, uh, yeah, that's basically me. And how did you become a Red Sox fan up in Montreal? Well, it's uh, it's actually a really complicated story. I um, So when I started following baseball, the ex, we, there was this, I guess, expectation that the Expos were going to leave. And after, like, in the 2004 season, uh, it was obvious that the Expos weren't going to make the playoffs and were going to get eliminated and um, I was trying to find, I guess, another team to root for. And my brother, for some reason, I don't know why, but he always liked Boston teams. And he will, so he was following the Red Sox. And so then I just hopped on the Red Sox bandwagon. And I've been a fan ever since. Uh, I've really been a fan since, um, since I think the Aaron Boone home run, which uh, was a pretty uh, jarring experience. So you would be, as one of our former guests called, a glory hound. I believe that was the term. Uh, it's possible. I've actually never heard the term before. <laughs> Goodness, who was it? it? That was a great show a few weeks back. That was a great term he dropped on us. So, uh, Seth, tagging you in here, buddy. Uh, Want to hear? Uh, just introduce yourself to everybody. Twitter handle, where they can find you. You know, day job and all that good stuff. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, my name is Seth Rubin. I currently live in New York City. On Twitter, we found at SR, so my initials, Gourmet Sports, because I sometimes blog about food as well on my own 
um, personal blog. But I've basically been a Mets fan since birth, as my parents um, grew up in Queens where the Mets play. So, yeah. And then for a day job, I currently work for a financial institution in the city doing uh, modeling of calculating how much money they lose in the recession, which is kind of a fun and interesting thing to do. Oh, that's a pretty cool job. So does that math or those skills translate over into, you know, baseball, you know, statistical analysis? Yeah, they definitely can. I've been trying to figure out how to make that connection, but definitely working on it. Well, that's a nice benefit or a nice, uh, what do you call it, tool in your uh, toolkit. So very cool. Uh, and let let me the next question. Obviously, we go every week as well. Is how did you guys become fans of Effectively Wild? And are you Team Ben or Team Sam? I'll stick with Seth here. Let's go, Seth. Um, so I guess I became a fan back I think March 2014. So just about a year ago, I was commuting every day from living at my parents, where I moved after college, to the city for work, and I was kind of getting bored every morning so i kept started by reading books but then i found about out about um effectively wild on the internet so i decided that i'd start listening to that and it really got me hooked once i got into it and i'm definitely team ben i think probably because he's from new york so i can more relate to him but yeah i think that's pretty much the reason all right that's a good reason i'll give you that one that's good julian yourself same question um I I started getting into Sabermetrics, I think, around in 2009. That's when I guess I started becoming a, a hardcore baseball fan. And uh, ever since then, I guess I was trying to find an intelligent, um, Sabermetric-minded radio show. And I had no success finding that. And I was a big fan of Brian Kenny. And, uh, so, and then Brian Kenny uh, at that time was on Twitter. And he basically posted a link that he was going on this podcast. And so I, I listened to the podcast and I was like, oh, wow, who are these guys? <laughs> and um, I, that's basically I've been hooked ever since. Uh, I think it was the 300th episode that I started listening to around that time. And I guess I'll be I think I'm team Ben slightly. Uh, the. uh the experience of seeing uh, uh, Sam Miller, though, was was really jarring. I, I honestly never thought I was ever going to see uh, see what it, know what he looked like. I mean, that's a handsome, epically awesome beard that Sam is rocking. <laughs> I mean, as I said, I've put a seven on that beard, and I'm sticking with it. So. But I'm Team Sam all the way. Uh, I used to be Team Ben. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to meet Ben a couple times, and he's one of the nicer human beings you'll ever meet. So... Uh, Personally, I'm Team Ben, but that beard makes me Team Sam. So, <laughs> all right, guys. So let's uh, let's dive into some baseball talk here. I could talk Sam's beard all day, but uh, Julian, I want to start with you this week. We're going to go alphabetical. Uh, I know you're a Red Sox fan, and I want to touch on the Red Sox a little bit. Although we've talked to them a little bit on our podcast, but the first place I want to start with them is kind of the big news of the last. I think it was this week. If it wasn't, it may have been late last week. But Yoan Moncada. I may have said that name wrong. But I just want to get your take on the Red Sox being the team that signed him. And then I kind of want to discuss with everybody, you know, perhaps the fact that, you know, the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Mets or, you know, some of the other big market teams that may have had a bigger need didn't get Moncada. So, uh, Julian, let's start just from the Red Sox perspective. Uh, Yoan Moncada. Well, um, if you just, I think, look at it as just a Red Sox uh, perspective, just to start off with, um, 
I think it's a really good signing. It makes their farm system considerably better, and it's just it it just adds an, another talent, uh, incredible talent to I guess an already amazing farm system and really deep one. And it, it just people have said that he's their uh, top prospect. I I still like I guess have I I know nothing about the guy, so maybe I still have Swihart ranked before him. But I think the reason. The Red Sox signed him is because um, of the international uh, bonus pool, and they blew by that. And uh, so basically, they were gonna have they had all this free money, so to speak, to spend on Mancada and the Yankees too, actually. And I don't, I have no idea why the Yankees didn't spend more money. They, to me, a lot of people said the Dodgers were the front runners. Uh, to me, I didn't see why the Yankees just wouldn't blow by everyone. I mean, they have more money than the Red Sox, and they have a much bigger need than than for than the Red Sox. They, their farm system is just not nearly as good as theirs, according to uh, prospect reports. Yeah, Seth, I, I know you're a Met guy, but I'm going to throw you in to give the whole New York perspective. Are you surprised that he didn't go to either the Yankees or, or the Mets? Well, the Mets didn't blow by their um, bonus pool like I guess the Red Sox and Yankees did last year. So it wasn't so much a surprise to me because that way they can spend the money this year. But as far as the Yankees are concerned, yeah, I was definitely surprised that they didn't spend the money. I think for at least well, at least going with $31 million, which was a bargain compared to what people thought he was actually going to go for. And the Yankees already blew by their bonus pool, signed all these great players for millions and millions of dollars. I don't, I don't think it could have hurt them in one bit. And I think he would have definitely have been there for a very long time and would have been a great attraction for the fans. Yeah, and their whole infield is pretty old right now, I guess, except Gregorius, who they just acquired. I, I, I was stunned that, I, I mean, we're talking a lot of money. We're talking $63 million. And, you know, you've got to come up with $31 million you know, in a check, I guess, in the next 30 days. So I understand how difficult it is to put that kind of money together. But I just think George Steinbrenner would have gotten that done. So anyway, so what do you guys think about uh, – so are you surprised – so what's the next step with Moncada, I guess, is probably the best way I want to say it. Does he start in the minor leagues this year? Um, well, I guess I'll go. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think he's. it's obvious uh, that he's going to start in the minors. Uh, he also – uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he hasn't played in baseball in like a year. So I don't see him like a lot of people have said that he's probably going to fast track to the majors. I don't quite see that. Uh, I'd have, I guess, a hard time believing that a player that hasn't played for like a year gets, I guess, a fast track into the majors. But um, I think when he'll be up, they'll be ready to, for example, maybe move uh, Sandoval to first base or DH and he can slot in there. I don't see him as. Uh, Apparently, he's not a shortstop, and we have Xander Bogarts, and Pejoria, Dustin Pedroia is signed to forever. So, <laughs> so I just I don't uh, I don't I don't see a spot there, and our outfield's really crowded, and we have Hanley and Castillo, and I bet is hopefully going to be here for a while. So, I I guess third base really seems to make a lot of sense for him. And does he begin the year? I guess at Double A. Does that sound right? Uh, from what I've heard. It's been Greenville, which is a not high. So that's low A. Oh, wow. So they're really going to start him low. Yeah, that's, I guess that's what I've been hearing. But they, they might start him. Actually, I'm, I, um, 
my opinion basically is based on reports that I've read. So they their plans might change midway. It's very possible that he starts in high A. I don't seem, from what I've heard, there's very little chance that he starts in double A. Well, and that also means that you know if he hits his way, he can they can promote him as well. So it makes some sense. Like you say, he hadn't played baseball in a while. So okay, uh, I guess that's enough Moncada talk. That that works. Uh, Julian, the other topic I wanted to uh, cover with you before we dive into the Red Sox is uh, the size of the strike zone. You said you wanted to touch on that a little bit, and that has been a hot topic the last couple of weeks in the uh, in the vein of I don't know speeding up the game or what have you. So, just your thoughts on the strike zone. Yeah, so uh, there's been a lot of really good articles written so far on the strike zone, and there, there's obviously uh, there was a study done by the Hardball Times where they showed that the strike zone basically has been expanding uh, considerably downwards uh, ever since the uh, pitch FX era, and it's really and I wrote an article and basically if you see in 2006 zone uh, evaluation um, basically got implemented and you kind of see just this downward trend in offense. Now, is that the only reason for the downward trend? Probably not. I mean, there's the... I like to think that we're getting rid of steroids and whatnot, and that's also probably causing a downward trend in, in the offense. But um, it's... It, it has... It, for me, it'd be hard... It'd be really hard to believe that it hasn't had a considerable impact on the offense. And I'm sure if we shrunk it a bit, it'd be a good way to to increase offense. And it wouldn't really, we wouldn't really be changing rules. We would be reworking them. Um, in 1996, the rule uh, changed that the strike zone was going to be below the knees instead of at the knees. Well, Seth, what's your take? Because I think we all agree that the strike zone has definitely been getting bigger. I, what do you think, uh, just kind of in general? Yeah, so definitely, I think it's been getting bigger. I think as far as like the offense has been down recently, and definitely as a Mets fan, I've seen the offense. Um, I'm not sure if that's exactly the reason, but it could be one of them, that they definitely need to do something to kind of get um, offense back up and improve this um, and make the strike zone smaller, definitely make it more competitive for hitters again. Yeah, I tend to agree. I, I... We've definitely seen it expand downward. I mean, and we've even seen teams like Oakland trying to get low ball hitters to try to counterbalance this effect. But I, I do think there's something to be said for, and it frustrates me because I, I do think, I mean, we're dealing with human beings, but we need to be more uniform with the strike zone because it used to be the strike zone was wider, you know, and you would get the edges. You know, I, I think of Glavin and, and Maddox and those guys just getting a little off the edge, but now it's. Man, you can throw that ball at the guy's shins now, and you're getting a lot of strikes called. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's definitely um, it's definitely a bit expanding, and I I think it it would just be it would just be a really simple way of uh, I guess fixing a or finding a, a fixing the problem of um, offense. Well, if it is a problem, I personally don't mind the low scoring environment, but I guess a lot of people don't find it very attractive. And if we want to get more fans to the games, I guess it would probably be a good way of not necessarily changing the game too much and attracting more fans. Yeah, but as we all know, if they're get, if we're trying to get more offense into the game, the games are going to probably take longer. I mean, that's that's unfortunately going to be the consequence. Longer innings, more relief pitchers used. It, so if we're trying to get more offense in, it almost seems to be counterintuitive or counter goes counter i should say to trying to get the the speed of the game quicker 
Yeah. Or at I, least the I overall the time of the game, maybe not the pace of play. That that could be different or two different things. I guess I just I, I personally don't have a problem with the uh, the time. I I like watching baseball games, but I I understand how it can be unattractive to a lot of fans and uh I just I don't know. I have no idea how you would be able to cuz it seems right now like they're trying to fix both problems and I I don't know how you would be able to do that at yeah, this point. And that's a good question. And Seth, I'd love your take too. Is do you, uh, and Julian, you answered this, but do you think there's a problem with the speed of the game cuz I I think there's a problem with the overall time it takes, but I don't think there's a problem with the pace of the game. No, to me the pace of the game's fine. As far as I'm concerned, I don't mind sitting. I don't really actually notice that there's anything wrong with the pace of the game. As far as the time of the game, I guess maybe for not as dedicated baseball fans, or just, I guess, your average fan might find it boring after a while. But to me, I don't mind having sitting there for three hours. I think it's very, at least for me, it's kind of fun, relaxing, especially like at nighttime to do thing to do, or fun on the weekends. So yeah. I don't mind spending three hours at the ballpark or watching it. But it's funny, you use that three-hour number, and, and that to me is, I, I love three hours in the ballpark. That I'm willing to do. But once you start looking at 320, 330, I start, and, and I love baseball as much as anybody, but I start tapping my toe a little bit myself because you're seeing just a lot of dead time going on if, if the game's taking that long. Yeah, and I think we definitely see that. Like, if the pitching coach is going to come out or the catcher is going to go out for too many conversations, then, yeah, then fans will get annoyed because that's going to take longer and make the game go longer. But if it's just the game being played and it takes a lot while, then I think that's fine and fans don't, won't mind that. Yeah, and that's a good distinction that I think we're all kind of making is it's the time in between innings and it's the time with the relief pitchers that you know is I think we could all do without to a certain degree. But like you say, I, I, the game on the field I actually think is pretty positive right now. No, yeah, and uh, I think... Maybe a solution could be uh, cutting down on, for example, um, commercial times. And uh, I think a possible way of doing this would be maybe um, advertising, putting advertisements on the jerseys. Although I'm not sure. <laughs> I have no idea if, I, if I'd be okay with that yet. I, and We brought this up on the uh, podcast a couple of weeks ago. How about just like soccer does, put a nice advertisement right underneath where the score is? And yeah, maybe that per- satisfies the one commercial you lose per half inning. Maybe that subsidizes that income loss. Yeah, that could be a really good way. And that's something that I've been really thinking about. Although, like, for example, I don't know how many people would be not okay with it. Um, but I, I know I personally, I wouldn't have that big, that much of a problem with it. I think it'd be a little bit jarring at first uh, to see, for example, if there was... Um, certain advertisements but uh, overall I, I i think i i would just i would get used to it yeah i tend to agree but the biggest thing and i'm not a soccer fan by any stretch of the imagination but the best thing to me is the fact that it's constant action for 45 minutes in each half yeah there's a halftime but it's movement the whole time i mean i would love something like that if the if the trade-off we have to make is the jerseys look a little different or we've got to sell out a little bit other ways there's nothing better than knowing you're going to get 45 minutes of straight action. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that could. Uh, although, although I don't think it'll be 45 minutes of straight action. But right. Sure. It could de- we could definitely cut down on the the time. Well, definitely, probably not. But I think it'd be a really good idea in uh, terms of uh, exploring. 
to cut down the times of the games. And the first place I'd like to cut is the from the 7 o'clock to the 7.10 where the talking head the announcers are rehashing everything that was just said in the hour pregame show that was just done. That, that to yeah. me, is, is the biggest waste of time around, yeah. frankly. <laughs> they usually don't say anything that's really relevant or that we don't already know. Or, or they the, can't the, crowbar in when the pitcher's warming up or in the first inning. That, that just drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah, and usually, like, the, the stuff that they say a lot of the time is they're just kind of filling dead air or it's, I don't know, irrelevant, I find, to the game. Or it's information that's, um, I guess, known. Right, exactly. for lack of a better word. I mean, it, it, if you're the kind of baseball fan, you know who's starting that night. So, yeah, like exactly. The, like you don't, I don't know. I don't need. And I, I don't exactly need, to, need you to tell me who's starting. Like you're probably gonna show it on, on anyways. Exactly. So we could talk about this, I'm sure, for a while, but uh, we got to kind of cut it here for time. So, Julian, I want to ask you two questions about the Red Sox before we uh, pivot. Uh, first of all, will the Red Sox make a deal before opening day? For uh, presumably for a starting pitcher, you know, a Hamels or a Zimmerman or or one of the names that you know have been rumored about. Okay, uh, yeah, I, I don't, uh, I really don't see it happening for Hamels or a Zimmerman. Um, maybe they'll get a depth, another depth piece, but I guess I think they're pretty set at this point with their uh, rotation. I think they're happy with their offense. They think that's going to carry them, and yeah, I just I really don't see them uh from all the reports i don't think they're going to make another trade and uh i don't think they have to at this point i mean they have a really good offense and you don't really like you don't need there's no one way of getting a win and you can have a really great offense and have an okay rotation and i think that's the way they 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 see it at this point okay i can i can get along that i can i can dig that so and final question I ask every week, 2015 win total for the Red Sox. Wow. Uh, I'll, I'll go with 92 wins. I think they have a really good team. And uh, even though they might not add a, a piece uh, to the rotation before the season starts, they, I think they'll add a piece midway, like midway during the season, maybe around the trade deadline or whatnot. And that'll... I think that'll really push them over the top. And the NL, I mean, the American League East is just, they're not that, there's no really good team. I think the Orioles are going to take a really big step back. The Yankees are very volatile. I mean, if Tanaka gets injured, I just don't see them having a good year. And I don't like the Rays. The one team I think that could give them a real competition is the Blue Jays. I still like the Red Sox offense better, though. I actually like the Red Sox rotation better than the Jays' rotation. Yeah, I do too. I think that division has a lot of teams that a lot of things have to go right for them. I think that's probably the best way to say it, except maybe perhaps the Red Sox. Yeah, definitely. So, all right, Seth, calling you in for the bullpen, brother. Okay. We need to talk some New York Mets because I think they've had one of the more intriguing off-seasons out there. I've, you know, watching them from a couple of hundred miles away south of you as a a Nats fan, they started out the off-season signing Michael Kadire, and that was a if you want to call it controversial or what have you, there was a that was a pretty big deal. And then we all thought, oh well, the Mets are going to be really active and you know making a lot of deals this off season. And then it's gotten quite quiet and queen. So uh, just kind of your thoughts on the off season and and kind of where are the New York Mets? Yeah, so that signing I guess of Kadir happened on the very first day 
where as soon as the um, offers were made to with the draft pick compensation, so the Mets right away signed Kadair, gave up their 2015 first round draft pick, number 15 overall, and now we have Kadair for two years. But then after that, it's basically been nothing. Some rumors, there were the Troy Tulowitzki rumors, maybe get him and Cargo at the same time, even though that was never happening. Um, <laughs> trading Dylan G, who's just like their number five starter, thinking they could try to get something for that. And But overall, they've pretty much done nothing since then, which, as a Mets fan myself, I don't mind, but I think a lot of fans were looking kind of for that big move to bolster the team, whether it was getting a shortstop like Tulowitzki or even Desmond from the Nationals or getting or making moves anywhere. But we've actually only signed, I believe I was reading a story that said they've signed two pitchers this offseason, which most teams tend to sign to 10-15 because you can never have too much depth in um, the bullpen or the minors. So it was just interesting that they've pretty much done nothing. But let me uh, let me overall, yeah, let me sorry. jump in and ask a question because what is, what were your thoughts of the Kadir deal itself? So at first I didn't really understand it because to me it's like oh you're giving up this 2015 first round draft pick. But at the same time, now that I think about it, he's, he'll come in and play left field or I think he's scheduled for left field right now with Granderson and right field. But after that, he'll be here for two years, but the Mets just have so much depth in the minors and so many top prospects coming up that in two years, either Brendan Emo, who was their 2000, um, I believe, 11 first, or 12 first-round draft pick um, out of high school from Wyoming, will be ready, or their most recent first-round draft pick, Michael Conforto, out of Oregon State, um, will be ready by the time that Kadiris deals up. So I think they'll be fine with that. And at worst, Kadir will perform well these next two years and help the Mets get to the playoffs. So he's viewed as possible. A, he's viewed as a bridge, then, is what you're kind of saying to the next yeah. generation of bats. And I like Nim- Nimmo and I like Conforto a lot. Both good bats and different players, but go- both good players. So, okay, so you like the Kadir deal. Let me ask you a few more about the offense because I think that's probably the biggest question mark with the Mets right now. Is what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, Granderson. Uh, Duda and David Wright specifically. Yeah, so I guess I'll start with Duda. So he hit the 30 home runs this past year. I think he'll definitely kind of regress down to back to normal. Like there was nobody expected last year to go the way it did for him. They had Ike Davis and him at first base. They got rid of Davis thinking that Duda would be slightly better at least, but no one expected him to break out that way. And then as far as Granderson and Wright are concerned, for Granderson, they're reuniting him with um, his p- hitting coach from the Yankees, um, Kevin Long. And they think that will definitely have a positive impact on how he goes about swinging the bat, um, how his swing is. Hopefully he'll get on base more with that. Um, but also with that, the Mets moved in the right center field fence by 10 feet, believing that it will allow him to actually hit more home runs because they're not going to get the same power from when he was a Yankee because sure. that fence is just way too short in right field at Yankee Stadium. So the home run totals there are way too um, large for what they actually should be. But I think Granderson will definitely have a bounce back year. He'll improve, hit some more power, definitely get on base more. Right last year was injured for most of the season. So I think he'll definitely bounce back. I think the offense can't be worse than last year considering Granderson and Wright both had down years. So I think it's definitely a spot where they're improving. And last year overall, um, they had enough offense to um, 
win enough games that the team was actually in the middle of the pack. So I think people are fine with last year, so they could only go up from there. Okay, two other spots I want to ask you about. I mean, I could pick apart the whole Mets roster, but uh, Flores at shortstop and Darno at catcher. What are you expecting from those guys this year? Yeah, so Flores, I guess, is a hot topic right now. I guess even Jonah Carey yesterday at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference made a joke at Sandy Alderson that they still don't have a real shortstop. <laughs> and I kind of get that, that he's not your typical shortstop. But at the same time, he's definitely, I think he could definitely handle the position. Yes, he's not going to be the greatest fielder ever, or even the greatest hitter. But I was looking at his stats, and I think last year he just had very bad luck. I think his contact that he made wasn't um, very good contact. So he wasn't able to put it in play as much and get on base. But I think he'll definitely improve offensively this year. And I was actually just reading a tweet from one of the um, Mets writers that his swing, that his stance in the box is different. So hopefully maybe working with a new hitting coach will improve his offensive numbers. And if the Mets pitching is good enough like it has been in the past, then I think his defense shouldn't really impact the team. And more so, like, the fact that a lot of fans were down on his defense. But looking at his numbers, he's not that terrible. Like, he's still, he's middle of the pack, which he's not going to be an Ian Desmond or especially not an Angelton Simmons of the Braves, but he'll be good enough for what we need. Yeah, and the the projection systems like Flores. I was actually surprised. I was looking at them the other day, and they like them, like him even more than Ian Desmond, some of them. So I was surprised. Yeah, I think... People are just way too down on him for no reason at all. I think he'll be fine. I think people just think he's not a real shortstop, so therefore, oh, you got to go make that trade, got to go make that move, got to go get someone for that position. Well, the organization almost—the organization almost did that to him by dismissing him, kind of that way as well. Yeah, yeah, true, definitely true. Because they've been going out. There have been the rumors about it, so maybe that um, motivated him to work harder too. Also. And uh, talk Darno for me. Yeah, so Darno has been, I guess he's been on and off. He's kind of struggled at the plate a little. But I think he was finally getting it together um, last year after some time in the minors. After he came back up, he hit for more for power. He was hitting line drives that were just going over the fence, which was his swing looked very nice. But the thing about him is that his pitch framing is actually, I guess he's middle of the pack or better as far as pitch trimming is concerned and getting strikes called. But the problem with him when looking at his stats is that because he focuses so much on trying to get that strike called that he's missing the ball sometimes and a lot of pass balls are going by him. Uh, he led the league with, I think, around 12 pass balls last year, um, which of which most of them were caused by the fact that he was trying to frame the ball. So that's definitely a concern for the Mets because – it's important to get those strikes, but you can't just go lighting the ball by you that often. Yeah, I mean, that's being, an absurd number of pass balls, absolutely. Yeah, especially since it was, if it's because he's trying to get a called strike, like, just go get the ball. Like, one ball, it won't hurt. It's better to do, I'd rather have him catch the ball and have a ball called than try to be one of the better framing catchers and have the ball just go by him so often. Right, but some of that could be, coming with experience too i mean that's the kind of thing that you can work out you know in these years too so yeah he's still young but i guess going off of darno is the fact that they do have um kevin plowecki who's one of like the top catching prospects in baseball um at triple a and he's ready to come over and take over the catching position 
So I think if we see Darno struggle, Ploiecki's going to come up and at least they'll have a platoon between the two of them. Um, take some time for both of them to see who's better and maybe also try Ploiecki at first base as well. Because if he's ready, there's no reason to keep him in the minors. Yeah, I'm a Ploiecki guy. I like him. And, and a great job by their developmental staff to take, you know, early but not a first or second round pick and really develop him into, you know, what should be a league average catcher. Yeah, I think no one really expected that, though. Not at, at least, all. Um, I can talk from the scouting side. Yeah. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, uh, let me uh, shift and talk the bullpen a little bit, because in that vein of, you know, not spending a ton of money this offseason, I think that was the one place where people thought, you know, maybe they go spend a little money and get a couple of, you know, solidify that bullpen. Uh, kind of your thoughts? Yeah, so I guess the main problem right now with the bullpen that fans would think is they don't really have a good um, lefty reliever. They got this Sean Gilmartin out of the World 5 draft, and they have some other guys competing for the lefty spot. But besides that, they don't really have a strong lefty. But to me, the bullpen, I think, also is fine. Um, maybe I'm way too positive on the Mets compared to other fans. But we have Minchia, who is good at closer, Familia, um, coming back, he's throwing like 98 miles per hour as the setup man, right, wherever he's pitching. Parnell will be back this year from Tommy John's surgery, who was the closer beforehand. So there are three strong guys who, if they, hopefully to me, they won't use one guy as the closer. If they can just rotate the three of them, either of, the, either of them can close and they can just use them when needed. So that's right, three strong guys who can pitch. Tor- then they have Carlos Torres, who pitched in 70 games last year. And he was a workhorse. He was always very reliable. And then with him, they also have Vic Black, who came over um, in the trade where they gave up Marlon Bird and John Buck to the Pirates a few years ago. Um, he came over with Dilson Herrera, their short, uh, second base prospect. So he's another, I think, reasonably to strong bullpen arm. So maybe I'm way too positive about that. And then also we have Dylan G, who... Assuming the Mets don't go with a six-man rotation, maybe they do. They tried trading him away for a relief pitcher, but if G goes into the bullpen too, then either he'll be, I think, good and be able to pitch long innings, give us a few innings out of the pen, or maybe somehow they try to work on him like Wade Davis did and who became a magnificent reliever out of the pen once he moved from starter. So who knows what will happen with that because they didn't, weren't able to trade him if they tried if they even tried there were some rumors but i don't even know if they did much with him right uh so a couple of quick questions before we wrap up the mets uh you mentioned it right in, when you were talking there do they make a starting pitcher trade before opening day i don't think so i think they have to see how harvey comes back from tommy john's surgery and then he's gonna be they won't cap um his amount of starts that he has but i think they'll definitely be watching him this year um, Wheeler, DeGrom, they're both should be strong this year. And then we also have Bartolo, so he's always very reliable. So we do have five strong pitchers in the rotation already. And then Syndergaard, their top prospect, will come up at some point this year. They can't just leave him in AAA forever. He is getting older, and he should be brought up eventually. And then we also have other strong pitchers like Rafael Montero, who is another top prospect of theirs. So he has to come up too. To me, he might go to the bullpen. So I guess they could make a starting pitcher trade right now, but I think they want to see how it goes first 
before making any decisions on if they need to get rid of anybody at all. Maybe midway through the season, if things are going well, they trade away a pitcher, but right now I think it's okay. Okay, fair enough. Uh, next question. Uh, give me a bold prediction for the Mets in 2015. A bold prediction. I'm going to say that Flores ends up being one of the better shortstops in the league. In the I National think. League or in all of baseball? Um, I think in all of baseball. I think wow. he'll be fine. Okay. I think fans are way too down on him, like I said. I think he'll be able to hit for above average. He'll be uh, fine defensively, maybe even above average. I think fans just have very poor, uh, low expectations of him. And I think he'll surprise a lot of people. So it's official. Seth is Team Flores. Okay. I, I got it down. And uh, final question on the Mets. Uh, 2015 win total. Uh, I'll go with 84. So I think they'll definitely break the 500 mark. And I think 84 to me is... I think a low point. I think they'll definitely get to 84 because they have such a strong rotation um, and all these young players. And their defense is Lagares, who's the best in the, the league, as well as Dyer and Granderson. And then their offense should be fine. So I think they'll definitely be above average. And most of the National League is around the same area anyway. So at that win total. So I think 84 is the right amount for them. So is 84 get them second place in the division or third? Um, or fourth, well, I, I get. Let me take that back. Second or third? <laughs> I think I'll go second. Yeah, I'll go with second. I think they'll finish either tied or one above the Marlins. So you're skeptical of the Marlins, like I am. Yeah, I okay. think the Marlins are good, but I think the Mets are ultimately better. I, I, it's funny. I tend to agree as well, and a lot of people have given me a lot of grief about that. But I tend to agree. I think the Mets have a better team, or certainly have a much better chance at being a better team than the Marlins do in 2015. Yeah, I think the Mets have the tools there. I think, and they can, at worst, they have downside. Whereas I think the Marlins are a good team, but they have to have the upside to get there because they have to have everything work well for them with their young players. That's well said. That's actually very, very well said. I'm 100% on board with that. So, all right, guys, let's push ahead. Uh, We've talked Mets, we've talked Red Sox, we've talked some things. Now, the next topic that I want to talk about a little bit today is. Baseball in Montreal. Fortunately, we've got Julian here who lives in Montreal or in the Montreal area, so perfect person to talk about or talk to about this topic. But, you know, uh, your thoughts kind of, you mentioned it a little bit in the opening, I believe, about, you know, losing the, the Montreal Expos and looking for a team. And now there's a little speculation under the surface that maybe baseball is coming back to Montreal at some point in the future. So, I, Julian, I probably should start with you on this one, but uh, I don't, I do want to get Seth's opinion as well. And just, Baseball in Montreal, kind of open the floor up and and let you go. Yeah, um, I don't. I I'm not sure about uh, if we'll get a team anytime soon. I uh, I I personally don't see it. Um, if you look, for example, um, at the first time we uh, got a, a team in Montreal, it was like I, I read John Carey's uh, book on. On the expos, and basically, he explained that the there there had to be a lot of convincing and backroom deals uh, and manipulating to finally be able to to get a team to Montreal. And uh, originally, we were supposed to have a a, um, a a stadium, but we didn't. We uh, the professional team ended up playing at Jerry Park, which is which was a Triple A ballpark for what seven years, and then and then they built Olympic Stadium, 
which was a pathetic pathetic excuse for a stadium and uh which its primary goal was for the olympics it wasn't even for baseball and so i if i'm major league baseball i just i wouldn't trust i don't, i i don't know why they would trust montreal uh that montreal could basically have a team i mean i would certainly the the way i see it is they would montreal would have to like build a stadium and build one somewhere downtown where there's a really populated area um and even then i'm not sure that there's a lot of interest here i mean i i playing baseball you just you can kind of see baseball i guess going down or people getting less and less interested i know when i first started playing baseball uh our own we could have basically an entire league just in like through my own city and um as the years have gone on we've had to to play i guess include a lot of different cities to be able to actually have a league and it's i don't know i just uh personally i i really don't see I, I don't see it happening anytime soon, to be honest. So you don't think Montreal would support the team, or you just don't see it from baseball uh, trusting them, I guess? Um, or both? I, guess I, I, I see it from both ways, to be honest. I don't, I'm not sure that Montreal can support a team. I guess our, our economy is not exactly great and not exactly stable. Um, I have a lot of I have family friends who are uh, currently in business right now in Montreal. And uh, basically, this is uh, I'm regurgitating what they what they've told me, but they're basically telling me that the economy is not exactly doing very well, and that people's futures shouldn't really be Montreal. And, we, and uh, be, especially due to our political system, we have constant, not constant, but every now and then we have referendums, which is really annoying and i know the entire country is fed up with our referendums and i'm fed up with our referendums and uh it's it's not good for business and i just um i don't think it'd be i'm not sure it would be smart for baseball to come here and i really don't see why they would do it in for baseball standpoint like you would i guess have to move a team and I guess the choices are usually Tampa Bay or Oakland. And I don't like it'd be really cool to have baseball back in Montreal, but like I guess I care more about the prosperity of baseball than I do about having a team in Montreal. And uh I just I guess I don't see it happening. That's interesting. Seth, uh help me because I know we have uh, you're closer to the situation just proximity-wise, but it's interesting to hear Julian's perspective because I thought that it would be a lot more uh, positive what he would have just said about moving to Montreal and the idea of it than, you know, he kind of poo-pooed it. Yeah. What do you think, Seth? Yeah, so I guess last year the Blue Jays and Mets played a um, spring training game there and then both sold out. So I guess they think that fans would go back there. But I guess I kind of have a question for either Julian or for both of you since you are a Nationals fan, do people still consider them to be connected with the Montreal Expos, or are they considered to be two completely different things? Do you look at the Nationals as like the um, current Expos, or are the Expos just gone from people's minds? 
Uh, I, I can chime in just speaking from the Nationals. That That's a very interesting topic because there is kind of a large part of the fan base that does not want to accept that they were in Montreal for all those years, and they just want to say, hey, the Nationals have now been here since 2005. Let's only honor national people, you know, Nationals players. Let's not have, you know, Andre Dawson come out for, you know, Ring of Honor Day or whatever it would be. And then there's another half of the the population of the fan base that's, hey, you know, this is who we are. You know, the Texas Rangers were one, once part of the Washington Senators who are part of our legacy, too. We need to not forget about baseball history. History is so important in the sport and, you know, D.C. baseball. It's So it's a real split kind of in the middle of kind of where you fit in that feeling because there's definitely kind of a divide in the fan base about whether they want to accept that the Expos were part of it or not. Yeah, and I guess uh, from my side, um, I um, I, again, I started being a baseball fan like around 2000, 2003, 2004, and I was like uh, 10, maybe 9, 10, 11, sorry. <laughs> um, so I, I, I guess I don't feel that connection. Uh, I, I never felt that connection to the Expos. I'm sure someone, for example, like Jonah Carey probably feels like a lot more connected with the Washington team and he probably feels that like sees them I guess as like an expos but from my perspective they're two completely different enterprises if I can if that's the proper use of the word Julian let me ask you maybe this is a dopey question because it's not like America and Canada are particularly far away but what is the hierarchy of sports up by you I mean I assume it's hockey is first by a large margin but where does baseball kind of fit in is it number two is basketball more popular you know skiing and on the other where does it kind of fit in in the hierarchy particularly now Uh, with the expos not around if because this is um this is i guess that's a hard question to answer like i'm not entirely sure um Hockey's definitely first that's hands down and then i think i'll just keep it to the four major sports because if we uh if we go to like skiing or snowboarding, that all right. I have I have no idea. But I'd say probably baseball is like just Montreal speaking, it's probably fourth. Uh I know a lot of people here like football and uh, there's for example, um the if if you just look at it from my high school teams, um baseball was definitely the fourth. Uh there was definitely hockey was the biggest, then it was football, then it was basketball and then it was baseball. We, we were, uh, for example, I played for my high school team, and there was like I think we were four teams in the in the league. So there's just um, and actually covering the university sports, uh, it's definitely goes well. It goes actually football. I think football is actually before hockey when in university. So I, it probably goes football, hockey. Uh, then basketball and baseball's definitely last. Wow, and that's... it's lagging behind too. Wow, that's interesting. I, I, mm. So, uh, I I think this is a great segment because Julian, you've certainly enlightened me because I thought it was a lot more of a slam dunk than than you seem to be telling us. So that's uh, the, well, one of the great things about this podcast is you get different perspectives and and can hear different things. So that that's great. Well, it's it's also it's just it's also I guess um, my own I guess uh, it's very subjective view I guess from my own experiences. Uh, there are groups that really think that 
the Expos can come back. Like there's this group called Expos Nation, and I know they're really enthusiastic about getting the Expos back in Montreal and everything, and they're going to be at the pitch talks. And um, But I just personally, I guess maybe I'm clouded by my own subjectivity, but... Uh, but I don't yeah. think that's a bad thing, to be honest with you. I mean, you're the kind of the target audience they need to be getting. A baseball player who came up, who loves the sport, and you know is just starting to get through the university, about to the point to start making some money. It's like, you're their ideal fan. And so yeah, if but... you're kind of sullen or downcast on, on the possibility, then maybe that's kind of where it really is. That's true, but um, how can I put this? Also, like, for example, for me, if the Expos came back, like, I'm so engraved in, I guess, Red Sox nation that it'd be hard. Like, even if I, if, Mont- if a team came back to Montreal, I still, like, I would go to the games and uh, they would get to be, they would be my second team after, like, I don't think I could ever, I guess, stop being a Red Sox fan at this point. You realize saying Red Sox Nation just had about half this podcast, the people listening just grit their teeth and grind them, right? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that might be a perfect transition and segue to uh, the final question of the week. We do it every time. Uh, biggest baseball pet peeve. Uh, I don't know if one of you guys wants to particularly start, but uh, biggest pet peeve, guys. I guess I'll start with this one. All right, Seth, go um, ahead, bud. So mine is, I guess, the bickering at least as far as Mets fans are concerned, maybe it's with other fans as well, that they just can't ha- seem to have this positive attitude towards the team. I think maybe it's because we've been so bad for so long. We've just been waiting for another winner, kind of like I guess the Astros have been waiting for a long time. We're not quite as bad, but there's just like so many groups of fans that are either... Ang- so there's one group of fans that's angry with the owners, wants them to sell the team, blame them. It's blaming them for the lack of success. But then you have the other groups of fans um, such as the seven line, which is one of the great Mets fans, they're always very positive, always behind the team, always very excited. And then I think you, I think it's just that these different groups of people, whether angry or happy, I think it's just the fact that there's constant bickering between them. Even like with the Twitter accounts, I saw one of these people who I guess is wants the team being sold. It's like the team need is the team needs to be sold. We can't even focus on being the best team in New York, which is what this other group is saying. They, they want to just be the best team in New York. They want everybody behind the Mets. And this other group is just being like, no, we can't do that because they still own the team. How dare we even try to win if they're still owning the team? And it just, people just need to be positive and like try to enjoy the game. Like Remember that it's just a sport and it's for fun. And it's very, you have to be enthusiastic towards it and be behind your team. But at the same time, just try to be positive. I think that's a great There's no need to be constant negativity. I think that's a great one, Seth, because just like I say, from my perspective as a Nationals fan, I think you guys have a ton of reason to be optimistic. You got a lot of talented players. Harvey's back. You got a ton of pitching. If some of the bats come alive, you got prospects. I, I would think this would be a great time to be a Mets fan. And you don't have great, you know, payroll restrictions right now. You could add a ton of payroll. You don't have a lot of bad contracts. Uh, I, I think long term, I'm most scared of the Mets in the division by far. I, I, I'm surprised that there are so many negative Met fans because I think the future is pretty bright myself. Yeah, and I'll be interested to see when I start going to games this season if people are at the games, see how crowded it is. I'm hoping it's crowded because, like I just said, the future is bright, but I guess there's just so much negativity and behind it that hopefully people are able to try to remain positive. 
and one out of five nights you're going to get to watch Matt Harvey pitch. I mean, that, that's pretty great. And Zach Wheeler, I think, could be a stud too. I, I, well, I hope more Mets fans are, get behind their team because I, I think they have a lot to be positive about. So, Yeah, definitely. All right, uh, Julian, biggest pet peeve, brother. Um, okay, so um, I, th- I think I'll go with it, the um, never-ending uh, statements, blanket statements based on no, I guess, facts or um, uh, previous information that a lot of TV personality people make or that I hear on the radio. It's um, basically what I mean is like people, some, they just say things for the sake of saying things. Like they're not, they're not, they're, they, they make statements and they say them confidently and they say them as, for example, as factual when they're not. Like they haven't, they're essentially blurting crap out, which is really annoying. And uh, for example, if it, it's okay, I guess if you're, if you have a, uh, a radio show, and you're talking on the air for like three hours and you do that once in a while. But it, if if it's kind of like this constant and never ending, like people do it like all the time, then it's it gets really annoying because I like, I don't know, it, that really bugs me. And it's not just like, for example, on in sports, like it happens, like my teachers do it sometimes. Sometimes they'll just say things and I'm like, that guy has no idea if what he's saying is true or not. And it's it's annoying. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a good one too. We've had similar takes like that, and and we definitely see the kind of the split between the old school announcers and kind of the new school saber guys announcing, and, and you know we're kind of in the midst of that changeover to a degree. So I think that's a good take too, Julian. Good call. Thanks. So all right, guys, uh, we are just about bumping up at the end of the show here, but I want to one more time just give you a chance to. Remind everybody where they can find you on Twitter if you do any other writing besides Banish to the Pen and uh, just say goodbye, more or less. So let's start one more time alphabetically, and we'll start with Julian. Okay, so yeah, again, my Twitter handle is uh, at Julian Asuline. Uh, Julian's with an E, so it's Julian. Um, and you can find my work at Fangrass in the community blog. And uh, I write for my school newspaper, so it's the link. And you can, f- and their website is thelink.com. Very, very cool, Seth. So once again, you can find me on Twitter at sr gourmet sports. So G O U R M E T, and then sports. Um, as far as what I do, I have there all my baseball, which is only at Banish the Pen. That's where I currently write. Or I also have a Tumblr where I post my food reviews. If anyone cares about eating in New York City, you can go there. But generally, just my baseballs at Banish to the Pen right now. Terrific. So uh, next time I'm in New York, I'm hitting you up, uh, one, to get a beer, and two, uh, for a food, uh, dinner res- reservation and recommendation. So perfect. Yes, definitely. All right, guys. Uh, once again, like I said at the top of the show, I'm a big fan of both of your guys' work, uh, and I'm really glad that you guys joined me this week on the show. Uh, I think this was a great hour of baseball talk, and I hope to get you guys on the show again in the uh, relatively near future. And I definitely recommend everybody go check out your work at Banish to the Pen and uh, follow you guys on Twitter. So thanks, guys, and talk to you soon. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. And that was Episode 9 of the Banish to the Pen podcast with Julian Asuline and Seth Rubin. Thanks to them for joining me today and for their contributions to the site so far. Both are very talented writers, and both are doing some great work on the site. So uh, definitely check them out. 
Also, uh, as I do each week, I would like to publicly thank uh, everybody associated with Banish to the Pen, our writers, our editors, our contributors, technical staff, and everybody. we got a lot of people doing a lot of hard work, uh, both, you know, in front of the site, so to speak, and then behind the scenes. So uh, thanks to everybody for their hard work. I think we're really putting out a great product, and uh, it's just getting better every week. So thanks to those guys. Big uh, clap and uh, job well done. With that, this episode is a wrap. I am your host, Ryan Sullivan, at NatsGM.com on Twitter, reminding you, be nice to your fellow listeners. <laughs>